Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim in the name of Allah, the gracious, the merciful. Good afternoon, peace be upon you, and welcome to the Draft Time Show here on The Voice of Islam. Today, with myself, Raza, and Brother Qiyum, over the next two hours, we're going to be with you speaking about two topics. In the first half of the program, you might have been following the news. It's been all over it. Uh, it's been a year since the uh, start of the Russian-Ukraine conflict, and that is something that we're going to be talking about in the first half of the program. And then in the second half, from 5 to 6, we're going to talk about nepotism and what exactly we are going to cover there. Well, you're just going to have to stick around. But before we get started, a few things to mention. In the first half, as I said, we are going to talk about Russia and Ukraine. And on that, there's a question that we are asking you on our Instagram story. Do you think that the Russia-Ukraine conflict, the war, will end peacefully? Is there a, an option for that? So you have three options. Yes, soon. Yes, after time. Or a simple no. But of course, if you have to say, uh, if you want to mention more than that, if you want to leave us a comment, by all means, do give us a uh, shout on social media. And uh, as always, you can give us a call on 0208-687-7878. Brother Kiyum, assalamu alaikum to you. Excuse me. Peace be on you, brother. Walaikum <coughs> salam. Interesting topics today. Russia, Ukraine. It's the one-year anniversary mm. of uh, Russia's invasion of Ukraine. And uh, the mainstream media has been uh, on fire talking um, talking about uh, our yeah, personal opinion, uh, talking about warmongering. Hmm. Um, in a manner which I think is dangerous. I think um, people are not aware of the significance of this war and the uh, the underlying um, message um, or the underlying dangers that lay um, lay you know behind uh, this this uh, this invasion, if you want to call it. Well, it is an invasion of of Ukraine what uh, President Putin did uh, but nobody seems to want to discuss why this mm. invasion took place and uh, and uh, you know this this uh, war isn't a year old it's been going on since I would say before 2014 2013 mm. around that time it's it's um, but um, it's uh, it's it, it will be a, an interesting hour um, uh, the guests that we will speak to um, will shed some light yeah. from their perspectives as to what is and what isn't going on. Um, and also, <clears throat> this war isn't just about weapons. Um, this is also about energy. And we will be talking yeah. to experts who will shed some light on the true nature of uh, how the energy crisis is intertwined with the Russia-Ukraine um, war. So, uh, if you want to contribute, we would love to hear from you. We'd love to hear your perspective. Um, 0208 687 or you leave a... Uh, you can join us via our social media platforms at Voice of Islam UK or um, feel free to email us on uh, via our website www.voiceofislam.co.uk 
In the Holy Quran, chapter 2, verse 206, God Almighty says, And when he is in authority, he runs about in the land to create disorder in it and destroy the tilth and the progeny of man. And Allah loves not disorder. The worldwide head of the Amdiya Muslim community's holiness, Hazrat Mirza Masood Ahmed, has reminded us over and over again at different occasions and different places that he visited and that he delivered speeches in. And the underlying theme that runs through uh, his caliphate uh, since he took over in 2003, which um, is, is now 20 years almost, that if we truly want peace in our time, then we must act with justice. We must value equality and fairness. As the Prophet of Islam, may the peace and blessings of Allah be upon him so beautifully stated, we must love for others what we love for ourselves. And also in the Holy Quran, we find over and over again verses, and we've said this here on the Drive Time Show as well as on the, on the Voice of Islam in general over and over again, that the solution to many of the problems that we're facing, not just on an individual level but primarily when it comes to political um when, when it comes to the political side of things when it comes to peace um spiritual peace physical peace when it comes to the harmony between families and and you name it is the lack of justice is that we have different values and different norms for it when it comes to ourselves when it comes to our loved ones, when it comes to our friends, when it comes to our family, when it comes to our allies. But when it gets to the nitty-gritty and when it comes to our opponents, our enemies, then everything goes. Everything, every value, every moral, every code of conduct is just simply thrown out the window. Um, but specifically in these situations, the Holy Quran has reminded us over and over again that let not the enmity of a people, meaning that if you are at war, if you are, um, if you have any enemies and that enmity that you have with your opponent, let that not incite you to act otherwise than with justice. And the lifetime of the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, over the course of 23 years when he claimed to be the prophet of God Almighty and when he brought that universal teaching is a living testimony to this fact. Um, at every stage, the early Muslims, the message of Islam was tried to be eradicated. It was tried to do everything possible to make sure that that message does not get out, that that message does not get across, not just the Arabian Peninsula, but across the world. But did that give him any incentive? Did that make him um, treat his enemies, again, who were out to not just kill him, but also his community, his entire community, did that make him um, adapt and adopt means that would go beyond what was done to him. Brother Raza, the problem that we are facing today, unfortunately, you gave the example of the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him. You talked about justice. You're talking about looking at a situation with an open mind. Um, but unfortunately, unfortunately, the world we're living in today and with the mainstream media, with the within the Western world, um, and I can understand it from an, from a, from the Western world's perspective to a certain degree. <clears throat> if 
Putin is uh, spoken about in uh, a positive manner, that means you must be anti-Ukraine. Yeah. If you speak, um, you know, if if, if you speak uh, um, for Russia, you're you're anti-Ukraine. You're you're um, you're a traitor. Yeah. And uh, a lot of people. <coughs> I was reading a survey recently where um when uh, uh, the the reemergence and the reoffer of of arms was given from Europe to Ukraine and majority of the silent the silent majority is always majority hmm. they were not in favor there were there was a, a significant p- um, percentage of people who said yeah it was a good idea a significant proportion said they don't know but majority of the people um said it was not a good idea that more weaponry is being offered to ukraine um and and the narrative used to defend ukraine hmm. um but this is something we can come back to earlier when i when, I, when, I, when we, I started yeah. when i started the, the when we started the show i alluded to the 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 connection of energy yeah. to 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 this conflict so let's go and uh, speak to someone who can um put some substance into this t- discussion let's go and talk to the ceo of uh, um kamar energy uh, good afternoon welcome assalamu alaikum and peace be on you uh, robin thank you for taking time out and coming on to the drive time show walaikum assalam good good afternoon um is the increase in cost of energy justifiable because at the moment um the the uh, the narrative even from the government is that uh, we are paying uh, f- kind of not paying the price but we are having to uh, pay because there's a shortage of energy because of the ukraine war um, and there's a shortage of availability of energy I- is it is it a justifiable reason well you know look i think there's three important things to to remember here um you know the first is that this increase in the, in the in the price of energy um it's it's not only about the the war in ukraine that obviously is a very big factor but not the only one um there is also the recovery from from the the pandemic um there's a lot of extra spending um and uh, and not not just in the uk but we're talking around the world energy demand went up and and the system was not always ready to meet that demand so prices went up anyway even in, in 2021 you know before the war the war obviously had a huge impact on on energy prices um but but again before the war if we go back to september october in 2021 the russians were already reducing their gas supplies to europe um and uh, and and prices were rising because of that um now what were their motives for that you know was it preparation for the war was it something else people will argue about this but still that that did drive up prices even before of course the uh that most of the russian gas supplies to europe were were gradually cut off um, um during 2022 but, and and you know, the third important important thing to 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 remember here is that actually energy prices the past few months have fallen that may not have come through into bills for households yet um but but it will i know it's been a tough winter but things for now look look like they will get better but i i agree with your the your what you're saying about europe but how much i think united kingdom gets less than 10% from russia the energy 
That's true. Yeah, they they bought about six percent of, 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 of gas in the UK. From I mean, com- compared to Europe, before. where they go into forty, fifty yeah. percent, I think, or something like that. Yeah. Well, that's true. That's true. But but it's a global market, and that's that's the problem, you know. So explain that to me. To explain that that so, what, exactly what you just said. It's a global yeah. market so, uh, for just for so, the benefit yeah. of the listener, because that's what everyone says, but nobody explains it. Well, exactly. So you know. Gas is, is, is uh, and very much oil, but also gas too, is traded around the world, right? Mm-hmm. So if, if, as what happens, you know, gas supply to Europe is, is cut off or, or reduced, um, European countries, France, Germany, you know, others will go out in the world market and buy gas, which is brought in from, from, uh, by tanker from the US, it's brought in from, from the Middle East, it's brought in from, from, from Africa and other places. Um, and then, there's, of course, if those supplies are reduced, then everybody's competing for, a, for less supply, and, and that means the prices for the UK go up as well. Um, you know, Europe has been very lucky that the Norwegians have been reliable suppliers for energy. They've increased gas supplies to Europe, but but not enough to 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 meet the uh, the, the, the full shortfall. Um, and uh, and so, so you know, because these prices go up for everybody, Europe has, has got energy, but it's been expensive. But if you look at other countries, if you look at Pakistan, Bangladesh, um, they've really not not been able to afford uh, gas supplies at all, and it's caused power cuts and, and severe problems for them. But, I mean, you, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned countries like Pakistan and other third world countries, because um, we, as Western developed nations, we've been eating into their quota, haven't we, to, to kind of build up our reserves, because we kind of are outpricing them in the market? Well, very, very much so, and this, I think, is a big concern, you know, for Europe... Yeah, it's expensive and it's hard for people to afford, but in the end, you know, Europe can pay. Um, and, and, and these other countries, unfortunately, can't. And I think that's been, you know, one of my criticisms. You know, yes, absolutely, Europe had to meet its needs, had to source energy um, for, 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 in order so people can heat their homes during, during the winter. Um, but Europe should also have given more thought to other countries and, and trying to help them out. Now, we talk about Russia, rightfully so. They are the largest um, uh, in in respect of reserves, they have the largest reserves. But countries like um, Iran, Qatar, USA itself, um, they also have reserves. Um, what? Why don't we kind of explore those options? Why? Why is it always on Russia? Because twenty five percent of reserves are with Russia, but there's seventy five percent which we can tap into, or or not. Well, you know, absolutely right. So. You know these countries, uh, and we're, particularly we're talking about the U.S., uh, U.S. and Qatar here mostly. Um, they have increased supplies to, to to the U.K. and to the rest of Europe, but they don't have limited capacity. They're building new capacity to export gas, mm-hmm. but that takes three, four years. So if we look at 2026 or 2027, those projects will be finished. There'll be a lot of new supply on the market, and we expect you know then prices will come down. But th- these things take a long time to build. Um, and if you go back to the pandemic, of course, you know, in 2020, nobody was building anything. So, so there's been a, a lag in developing these projects. Now, th- these are the nations that we can kind of tap into. Um, we, we seem to be, as a country, shooting ourselves in the foot because we're very eager to criticize people who, who and, I, and I specifically use Qatar as an example here, um, instead of building relations and um, with, with countries, um, where they are supplying a essential need for the country, what's the reaction of of these countries when they when when they think of uh, you know future dealings um, with with United Kingdom uh, in on on essential 
uh, reserves like us? Well, look, I think if we talk talk about Qatar and other Middle East countries, you know, um, their, their relations with, with the UK are good, and they uh, and they have a lot of investments here, and they you know they have their own property in London, and mm-hmm. you know, and so on. But, but are we not um, making it worse? So the relationship has you know has always been good, but there you know there are there are criticisms the UK and other European countries will make of uh, of political issues, of human rights issues, and so on. And, you know, that's also important to to stand up for. Of course. Um, but but I think what what is important is to avoid you know uninformed or unreasonable criticism, um, and you know there's a lot of criticism of, uh, uh, for Qatar in particular over the World Cup, you know some of that was justified, some of it I think was was unfair and and, and uh, ignorant. But and and I mean to me the, the only thing the thought that comes to mind when we talk about human rights is that in order to protect ourselves we don't we don't consider outpricing a poorer nation to grab their gas, we don't consider that as a breach of human right. Yet, well, yet, yeah. <laughs> yet, yet we're doing that and accusing other countries of doing uh, um, similar things? Yeah, well, that is that is problematic. Look, and, I, and I, as I say, I think, the, I think Europe, including the UK, um, while securing their own energy needs, they should definitely have, have engaged more with with poorer countries and say, what well, what can we do? You know, you're short of gas. Maybe there's other things that we can do to, to help you out through this crisis. Now, you know, gas, electric, until prices kind of shot up, nobody ever thought about the price of gas and, and electric, especially gas. And, and you know, suddenly we realized we are dependent on all these other countries. The worst possible scenario being we and and if this war does escalate will we ever get to a point where europe and uk suddenly have no supply coming in and if that does happen are there any viable alternatives right so i think i think europe and uk have done a lot um since this crisis began to find alternative gas supplies and i mentioned norway and there's you know the us and qatar and other places and, and that will get better up in the next 3 to 4 years um, but beyond that, of course, there are lots of replacements for gas. You know, the biggest one is efficiency. I mean, that's like insulating homes uh, and and um, um, and using things like heat pumps instead of gas boilers. And there's a lot of stuff that can be done um, to, to use gas more efficiently or or not not use gas at all. And then renewable energy. You know, we a lot of gas is used to generate electricity, um, so we don't want to use coal for that. Coal is dirty and polluting, so we want to look at solar power. But in the UK, especially wind power. You know, UK has tremendous wind power offshore in the North Sea and, and is building a lot of big wind farms. Again, this this takes a few years, but give it a few years, the, the UK's need for gas will, will go down a lot. Now, you mentioned Norway. Is that the Nord Stream that, that you're referring to, the, the pipeline? So, um, so Nord Stream was, was a pipeline from Russia to, to Germany um, okay. under the Baltic Sea. Mm-hmm. Um, it was part of Russia's plans to, to dominate gas supply to Europe, mm-hmm. um, and it was cut off in the... Uh, in the uh, uh, or at least you know, two parts of it. One part of it never started and was just about to start before the, before the war. And then it was blown up by these mysterious explosions last year, which, uh, you know, still there's no clear uh, explanation for. I think most people would assume it was the Russians, but, but um, no, no clear evidence <coughs> who or, or how it was done. And finally, Robin, has gas become um, kingpin in power negotiations? I mean... Russia is at the moment uh, enemy of the, of the of the developed world. Iran has been the, the the enemy since 1978, 
76 or since mid 70s you know what what is the future here um if these if if gas has become a power negotiator um are are these countries not kind of doing the same what um developed nations have been doing for decades are using um whatever reserve it may be as as uh, uh, as power negotiators yeah gas is absolutely has, has become a source of power you know in, in the 70s and 80s it was oil and oil is still important but um but but gas didn't have that role and now absolutely gas does does have that role but i think you know europe has kind of woken up to it, it getting far too dependent on russia mm. and i think even if the war ends and there's some kind of a peace treaty and, and so on you know europe will never go back to that, that same level of dependence on russia it will always want to have alternative suppliers and uh, and and be using more renewable energy and, and and other alternatives so you know in the end look at these countries yes they, they you know they have the they have the the right to use their gas and use their power as, as they wish um but they have to accept that you know in the short term yeah you, you can be very tough with your customers and you can cut them off but of course that means in the long term that you won't have customers so um you know that's that's really the choice they have to make wonderful Robin Mill, CEO of Kamar Energy. Thank you so much, sir, for taking time out this afternoon and coming on to the Drive Time Show. I wish you a fantastic weekend ahead. May peace be with you. Assalamu alaikum. You too. Assalamu alaikum. Zero two zero eight six eight seven seven eight seven eight. Um, we're asking you about the Russia-Ukraine war. Do you think that there's any peaceful solution to this war? Will it end? Um, peacefully, yes, soon, yes, after time, or a simple no. Right now, 68% of the votes have voted, uh, people have voted for no. Unfortunately, no peaceful solution in sight. But why, thing is, it's, it's, it's such a simple yet, uh, truthful question. Yeah. Um, why is it that the politicians aren't seeing that? Because clearly they're not. If they thought, if they, they they keep talking about how we want to de-escalate, we how we want to, we <laughs> we, we we don't want this war to happen. Yeah. I, I mean, isn't that what you kind of hear? That's what we've taken away. Yes. You know uh, that uh, you know this war is happening and in this all Putin. Fine, let's say it's, it is all Putin. But hasn't history taught us that, irrespective of. Uh, what war has been, uh, they've always ended on the negotiating table. Yeah. So why is it different here? Why is it that when uh, a couple of weeks ago when President uh, Zelensky came and he addressed the parliament and the European parliament, he didn't ask, and I was disappointed, he didn't say, help me negotiate a settlement here, help Mm. me negotiate a peace deal here with Russia. He said, well, Putin is a joke. We He's never going to negotiate. I want weapons. More weapons. And that's been the talk from the get-go. Anyways, I think that is a good question to ask to our next guest who's with us on the line. We're going to spark, uh, speak to Bryce Green, who's a freelance journalist and contributor at Fair, Fair, Ma- Fair Media Watch. Do apologize. Um, Bryce, good afternoon. Peace upon you and welcome to The Drive Time Show. Thank you for having me on. Glad to be here. Thank you very much for joining us today. Now, uh, Brother Kiyun, before we get to your question, I would like to ask you, Bryce, that when we look at how this conflict has been portrayed in the West, when we turn on any kind of news media channel, 
what my observation has been is that if you turn on the TV, there's a there's a one-sided um, story. And then when you go to social media, you get a little bit more flavor. If you do a little bit more digging, if you go into um, you know different media websites, uh, journalistic outlets, then you get to hear another whole completely different side. So do you think that we are getting both sides of the story here? Oh, absolutely not. Uh, and, you know, I can't speak exactly for the UK media environment, but at least in America, you know, it's a close analogy. Uh, the Everything is really one-sided. The dominant narrative seems to be that the United States and UK and the West are supporting Ukraine in a fight uh, uh, against autocracy in order to save democracy hmm. and uh, and because a lot of the journalists do truly they're going to cover the other side they're not going to cover this history of NATO expansion that has led to the war they're not going to cover uh, you know all of the uh, escalations that the US is doing all the refusals to negotiate uh, what they tend to do is to portray Vladimir Putin as a new Hitler and when you portray someone as Hitler, it's very convenient because you don't have to think about negotiations. You don't have to think about uh, finding a way out. You don't have to think about your own responsibility and your own contributions to the situation. It's just a, a cartoon narrative, uh, and it's very easy to, to sell to audiences. Uh, the problem is that that's so far from reality, uh, and it's, it really hampers our ability to understand the world as it is. Uh, Bryce, you mentioned uh, this this ridiculous narrative and comparable and calling um, Putin Hitler or making that comparison. But I recall just over a year ago, most of the Western American and United Kingdom and European main news headlines were referring to Ukraine as the breeding ground for far right nationalism. What's changed? What's happened? Right. Well, what's changed is that all the journalists decided that they want to be on the quote-unquote good side, be the right side. Uh, like you said, if you go back a year, two years, three years, it was well understood that uh, there was a major far-right problem in Ukraine. Uh, in fact, the U.S. Congress even included in their uh, authorization of military force, they included a provision that uh, prevented American funds from going to the Azov Battalion, uh, as part of the Ukrainian aid package. And Congress said that as a result of these far-right influences, as a result of these neo-Nazi paramilitaries, as the New York Times referred to them, uh, we don't want American money going to that. Uh, and all of this has completely been pushed down the memory hole. Uh, you know, you have, uh, uh, you know, Ro Khanna, one of the, a congressman here, he once tweeted out that we don't want these paramilitary neo-Nazis uh, funded by the U.S. government. If you fast forward to the year 2022 and 2023, well, you know, he's voting for aid packages that directly fund these groups. And so a lot, a lot of this has to do with journalists wanting to be on the right side. Uh, you know, they'll call any talk of Nazis in Ukraine, they'll talk, call that Putin propaganda or Russian talking points, despite the fact that they themselves have covered these very facts. Uh, and so it's a very weird moment for American media where uh, the the truth is staring them in the face. The truth is on last year's paper, but they're ignoring it. Uh, and like I said, it's all part of this uh, this narrative management exercise. Be it deliberately or unintentionally, the result is the same. 
Western journalists have uh, decided to suppress facts in order to maintain support in Western audiences for this war. Now, in UK, Ukraine has been on the front page for the past year. Um, they've been referred to as the closest ally in Europe. Yet, I, I came across, um, in fact, uh, one of our producers uh, posted some facts, some financial facts, which kind of shocked me because President Biden has kind of, in the media from a UK perspective, has been, it felt like he was on the back foot. But America has given 50, just over 50 billion um, to to Ukraine. Um, and UK has given, and the second one is UK, and they've only given five. What's do do the American people know that so much money is is being given uh, to Ukraine from United States in their name? Uh, they are aware, and uh, it's it's a tricky situation because a lot of them do in fact support it. Like I said, this media environment has cultivated this cartoonish image of. You know, um, Captain America saving the world for democracy, and uh, a lot of Americans buy into that. Um, but there has been opposition. You know, the libertarians here, um, some people on the right uh, have have voiced uh, opposition to this in the name of uh, keeping America first. Um, but what's really surprising is that the American left progressives are all on board for pouring money into this conflict. And uh, I don't know if this made the news in the UK, but a few months ago, the Progressive Caucus signed a letter uh, asking that the US try to pursue negotiations in this war. Hmm. And when this letter came out, uh, all the progressive leaders in Congress, they denied that they had anything to do with it. They said it was circulated without their knowledge. Wow. This, of course, wasn't true, hmm. but none of them stood by this mild, this tepid call to negotiations. The only people in American Congress who are opposing this sort of aid are the sort of right-wingers that you really should be scared of in other contexts. And so then you have this really tricky situation. Well, where is the anti-war movement and sentiment in uh, in America? Uh, and the fact that it's on the right should really trouble all of us. Most definitely. And And what's more troubling is that when this conflict started, everybody was like, well, we can't give you... We can't give you fighter jets. We can't give you tanks. Yeah. <clears throat> um, suddenly, now, um, um, today, over here, the headlines were Boris Johnson is saying, well, we should give Ukraine fighter jets. Isn't that a declaration of war? From from If I was in Putin's shoes, I'd be like, okay. Um, what's changed um, uh, that, that suddenly this... this uh, uh, play of uh, we are helping Ukraine under this humanitarian flag. Uh, suddenly, it's um, it's it's uh, you know raw ground for weapon sales. Right. Uh, this has been a, a growing trend throughout the course of the war. Early on, you would hear Biden administration officials stress the importance uh, for uh, of not escalating too far, not crossing Putin's red lines, and uh, not provoking a response. That could directly involve NATO countries, because you know, if uh, Americans and Russians were in direct conflict, well, I mean that spells game over for everyone, and that needs to be avoided at all costs. They understand that, but as this war, you know, went on, you had the the call for a no-fly zone. The U.S. said no. 
we don't want to directly engage. But as, as the war went on, uh, the U.S. started sending in more heavy weaponry. They started including longer-range missiles. They started including high Mars. Uh, and then you had a major escalation after the attack on the Nord Stream combined with the attack on the Cursed Bridge in Crimea. Uh, after that, Russia stepped up its level of attack in Ukraine. They started targeting critical infrastructure um, that, uh, that affects the, the power grid in the country. And, you know, the, the response from the West was to, you know, up the ante, was to start talking about these tanks, was to start talking about uh, greater involvement in weapon systems. And if you ask U.S. officials, well, they'll say pretty clearly, they say that, well, since Russia hasn't escalated yet, there's really no reason to think that they ever will. Therefore, we shouldn't worry about Putin's red lines. And then this is reflected in an interesting statement uh, or a pair of statements last week, one from Secretary of State Anthony Blinken, who said that uh, retaking Crimea is a Russian red line and that we should be wary of that. And then you have an undersecretary of state, Victoria Nuland, saying that, well, we fully support Ukraine and their plan to retake Crimea, even though all of these Western officials know full well that Ukraine doesn't really have a good chance of doing that. It's just this rhetoric that they're saying. They're saying we recognize these red lines and we're willing to cross them. We're willing to provoke. We're willing to escalate. And that's a very dangerous situation. And you have to ask, are there any adults in the room? Are there, is there anyone who will say, well, we need to negotiate. We should stop this death spiral of escalation. And we should sit down at the table. Hmm. And now we have the recent speeches of you know, Putin withdrawing from the New START Treaty and Biden declaring that this, uh, the, the world is united in support of Ukraine. Uh, it's a very dangerous situation. And uh, like uh, the, the previous commenter said, there has been no war that doesn't end in negotiation. The one exception maybe would be the World War II, which ended in unconditional surrender. But like I said, no adult thinks that that will be the result yeah. of the Russo-Ukrainian war. No one thinks that. Wonderful. Freelance journalist and contributor at Fair Media Watch, Bryce Green with us on the line. From Bryce, thank you very much for joining us today. Great to have you on, and uh, we wish you all the best. Thank you very much for joining us today once again. Peace be upon you. Happy to do it. Thank you. Thank you. Zero two zero eight six eight seven seven eight seven eight. There you have it. Well, Bryce is probably one of those who does not agree with the question, or you know, the question that we have about a peaceful solution to this. Interesting thing <clears> that <throat> uh, Bryce finished on when he talked about that it was unconditional uh, surrender yeah. at Second World War, yeah. but where a lot of people might not be aware that uh, the the bomb that was thrown on Hiroshima Nagasaki, it was after. The unconditional <laughs> surrender. It wasn't the yeah. reason. A lot of people think, oh, because, uh, you know, the Japanese were bombed and hence they surrendered. It was actually after. Now, speaking about the last point that uh, Bryce left on was about uh, the speech that uh, President Putin delivered just a couple of days ago. We're going to pick up um, on that with our next guest for today. Michael Tracy, who's a journalist, is with us on the line from the United States. Michael, good afternoon. PC Pony and welcome to the Draft Time Show. Thanks for having me. Thank you for joining us. Um, so, what are your thoughts on the speeches this week from from both sides, maybe? Well, I think they were re- reinforcements of a long-standing dynamic where both sides, and not necessarily to equate 
both sides in any kind of moral or strategic sense, but both sides are willfully raising at least what they claim are the stakes of the conflict. I think Putin himself said that the conflict is existential for Russia itself, hmm. meaning that Russia's war in Ukraine bears directly on Russia's continued existence as a state, and it needs to prevail in order to preserve its own, again, continued existence. And Biden, likewise, in going to Kiev himself, affirms some of these maximalist ideological commitments to the war that he's espoused now for the entirety of the conflict, but which he's continuing to maintain the fervor of in declaring. And whether you disagree or agree with this prognosis, I don't have much reason to doubt that it's a sincerity. It's a sincere reflection of Biden's actual beliefs, for better or worse. Hmm. But he, more or less, has proclaimed that the conflict is this cosmic struggle between more or less good and evil, and at the very least, as he puts it, it's the focal point for the to the preservation of democracy, meaning democracy itself is at stake in Ukraine. Um, so these are irreconcilably maximalist beliefs as to what the meaning of the conflict is, right? And I think that goes at least part of the way in explaining why there's no movement whatsoever that we can see anyway in the public record towards some sort of conciliatory or diplomatic approach to resolving the conflict. Rather, it seems to be trending in the opposite direction where, um, you know, total victory of some sort seems to be what people are at least proffering as their only um, acceptable outcome you know, for either side. Michael, you're a roving journalist. You've, you're, you're, um, yeah. I, I follow you on Twitter, and and I see um, you you making waves in <laughs> in in a lot of uh, in a lot of your colleagues. Uh, um, um, you know, um, not on the, on the positive side. One thing you mentioned just yep. now. <laughs> one thing you mentioned about Biden genuinely thinking. This is about good and evil. Yet, over a, over the past couple of years, it was the West who were um, uh, who were reporting about Ukraine being fertile ground for far right nationalism um, because they were surrounded by there was Poland there, there was Viktor Orban in Hungary, there was uh, um, a lot of people with that ideology of far right extremism were kind of. Um, being trained or or reportedly being trained and you know mainstream newspapers were covering those so what's happened in the past year or two years that the the journalistic fraternity has kind of forgotten that they were the ones who were reporting the total opposite of what they're saying now yeah you know it's amazing how seamlessly that narrative was turned on its head and nobody even seemed to pause and notice or at least sort of attempt to suss out how it is that such um, such a swift and decisive narrative switch could be executed and everybody just kind of assumes that that's the law of nature or something it wasn't even it wasn't even the media so much 
that shifted. Well, I should rephrase. Yes, you're right that the purported prevalence of this far right sentiment in Ukraine was widely reported on the media. But even look at the U.S. Congress. There was a letter that was organized in 2018 by Ro Khanna, the Democratic congressman from California, who then co-chaired the Bernie Sanders presidential campaign, where he was complaining about, and I think about 40 of his Democratic colleagues signed on to this letter. It was addressed to the State Department. He was complaining that the Ukraine government was engaged in state-sanctioned Nazi, quote, glorification. That was his words. Hmm. And this was a concern that was being emphasized by the more progressive, quote-unquote, element of the Democratic caucus vis-a-vis Ukraine, because the idea was to exert greater oversight over to whom U.S. resources were being dispatched in Ukraine. And the idea was they didn't want to embolden or or bolster or provide uh, material support to any sort of fascistic or Nazi-aligned uh, element in Ukraine, and you know that was that's in the record. And then they all of a sudden turned on a dime and insisted that any reference to any of this was simple propagation of Russian disinformation, right, or an, an attempt to aid Russia's justification for its uh, war effort. So really, what happened was the prerogatives of accurately reflecting the truth or conveying reality got subordinated to the prerogative of opposing Russia and supporting Ukraine, which even if you think it's justified to support Ukraine or oppose Russia, it's ultimately a propagandistic purpose, right? Because you're either supporting or opposing the war aims of a particular warring party um, in, a, in an act of conflict. And so that that's, that's I think, the kind of uh, essential explanation for, for what happened there, the, the, the way that these you know, imperatives got, uh, got flipped and guided you, the analysis. You, you've, been, you, you've been appearing on different uh, channels around the world um, in, in uh, you know, Middle East and uh, Israel and in America, even Fox News, with, yeah. with uh, you know, everyone giving a different narrative um, everyone talking about Putin. Nobody is willing to talk about what should Putin do if NATO build uh, or stock their arsenal in Poland. Nobody talks about. Nobody is even willing to go um, uh, go down that route. That if they were in Putin's shoes, would they allow um, you know such weaponry to be on your borders? What, why is that? N- nobody's willing to talk about NATO's responsibility. Right. right. Well, because they think that, meaning U.S. slash Western media, tend to think that that's an attempt to propagandistically deflect uh, the assignment of blame from where it should be rightly assigned, which is Putin. And they think that any uh, self-scrutiny or, or introspection as to the potential culpability of the um, U.S. or NATO or what have you, that's all, again, in service of supporting the 
propaganda objectives of, of Putin and therefore intolerable. You know, it's funny, you're right, I have been on a wide variety of media over the course <laughs> of the world. I'm, I'm glad but, I reminded you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, uh, and it's funny because, like, uh, when it, I've been on Indian media. I had right. a, a Chinese inquiry and stuff. Yeah. And on those forums, there is more interest in the main in discussing like the policy response of the U.S. NATO from a kind of skeptical or at least just a journalistic perspective than there would be anything close to like an appetite for within the U.S. media because in the U.S. media it's you know all Putin all the time and always about kind of fervent denunciation as though that's the be-all end-all of how one can make an assessment of the conflict, right? It's kind of almost childish. And that's the only sort of, they're like a one-trick pony, and that's, that, that's the only sort of uh, way that they know to approach the issue, just denouncing over and over again, as though that, that makes any difference. Well, the, the, um, reason, the reason I asked about the, the, the international presence of, of you being on media is because the West keep on, or the Western media keeps on talking about how the world is against Putin. Mm. That's not the right. case, is it? I mean, it's only the Western developed world, because Africa, Asia, South America, um, they, they're, they're either for or neutral to Putin. Right. So, so, so this, right. this, even, this, this, this narrative of the world is against uh, uh, Putin is, is incorrect, is it not? Right. And even countries that are ostensibly within the direct orbit of like the Western security order, and I hate using that term or terms like it because they're so cliched and <laughs> annoying, but I'm just saying it for simplicity's sake. Even countries that are supposed to be within like that direct orbit of, in particular, the United States, have not aligned with the United States um, policy or acceded to its demands in terms of how they should respond to the Ukraine situation. And that includes even you know Israel, Saudi Arabia, um, Hungary, which is a NATO member, uh, member state, Turkey, another NATO member state, not just any NATO member state, but the state with the second largest military within NATO, Yep, um, a, a fairly drastically different position uh, it takes than the United States. Um, so, yeah, on, you have those, you know, UAE, um, Qatar, etc., uh, similar story. Uh, so those those and those states are space, basically supposed to be um, aligned with the general strategic interest of the United States, or at least that's what we're generally told. Um, so yeah, you have that, but then you also have the countries with the that comprise the lion's share of the world's population. I mean, it's funny. Uh, Biden goes to Kiev this week, makes all these grandiose proclamations about how freedom as we know it hinges on the ability of Ukraine to achieve a military victory in the Donbass and in like Zaporizhia, right? Uh, and you know, again, this is all in the name of this noble attempt to ensure that future generations could enjoy the fruits of democracy. And it turns out that the position of the world's largest democracy, or the country that's like reputed to be the world's largest democracy, India, hasn't changed at all. I mean, even just yesterday, they continued to abstain in the uh, UN vote on. Um, condemning Russia and calling for an immediate withdrawal by Russia from, from Ukraine. So, yeah, the, 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 the highfalutin rhetoric um, maybe sounds self-flattering to a lot of the people who engage in it, but it doesn't actually accord with um, the reality of, of, 
of actual international international public opinion, at least as far as we can best um, ascertain. Finally, Michael, um, I don't want our listener to think we're talking pro-Russia, pro-Ukraine. One of the reasons we're discussing today this this conflict is no one seems to be looking at middle ground. No one seems to be thinking, well, okay, Russia did wrongfully, for whatever reason, wage war on Ukraine. Instead of, you know, the, the... as Bryce Green said, you know, the, you know, where's the elders? Where's the grown-ups? As grown-ups, somebody to say, okay, find middle ground. There needs to be peace. There needs to be middle ground here. We cannot be escalating this. That seems to be missing completely from this conflict. There's no middle ground. You're either with us or you're against us. Where do you think? Are we? Where? Where are we heading? Are we heading through dangerous times, or is this just rhetoric? Well, I think a key feature of how the public discourse around this conflict has um, has presented itself is that there's this constant expectation or this constant requirement imposed that to talk about the war, one must always be in this mode of uh, moralizing, meaning that if you're not always denouncing Russia and valorizing Ukraine then you're under suspicion. And so most of the time, people hew to that line. Uh, Because you don't want to risk professional consequences or social consequences of appearing to be uh, sympathetic to Russia. And those consequences are actually real for uh, a lot of people, depending on what their kind of station in life is. So they hedge um, pretty significantly in what they're willing to say. Um, and, and, and that's really a that's that's such a sad state of thing affairs. to have imposed on. And that's it's so distorting because in order to rationally analyze uh, an event as multifaceted and fraught and um, grave in, in terms of its potential um, uh, danger that it poses, you, you have to kind of step back from that hyper moralizing frame of reference and actually try to do a bit more of a detached, dispassionate evaluation every now and then. And, but that's you know, forbidden for the most part within sort of mainstream circles. Mm. Um, and so you don't really have it ever explained in public venues or in public forums in the United States that what the U.S. policy has been geared intractably toward uh, since the war started was incremental escalation of the warfare. I mean, that was the point in why the U.S. has sent higher and higher grade weaponry every couple of weeks or months. Um, the, the intent of that policy was so that Ukraine would be able to wage more intense and effective warfare and even expand the, um, uh, expand the domain of the war fighting. Hmm. So, but, but that's not really clearly communicated to most audiences, so they think that the only culpable party in any kind of ex- uh, escalation is Russia, because Russia's bad, and that the, only the bad actor could be responsible for escalating, hmm. which is just not true. In just a, just a very sort of baseline, almost uh, banal sense, in that you know it takes two to tango for an escalatory spiral to be carried out, right? So if it, there's a tit-for-tat escalation... 
um, which there has been with like the U.S. and uh, Russia kind of uh, countering one another and acting in accordance with what what what, what each other does. Um, that that's the that's the fundamental dynamic at play here. And so there's no critical scrutiny placed on to what extent the United States has contributed to this situation that we find ourselves in now, where at least if you listen to what the public allegations are, they're now saying more or less that China is plotting to enter the war more or less as a co-belligerent alongside Russia, mm-hmm. which is what, like an astounding development potentially if you want to stipulate that it's true, because it would broaden the contours of the war into something resembling a bonafide world war. And if that's now the point we, you've, we've reached, um, then that's nothing if not an, excla- uh, an escalation. But people don't. People uh, haven't been communicated with the details and the, the knowledge required to understand how that escalatory spiral actually progressed into what what uh, role the the United States in particular played in in accelerating it, which I think is dangerous. And so we, when you ask where does this lead to or what's going to happen, um, I've learned uh, that it's a folly. Um, to make firm predictions about something as sort of inherently unpredictable and chaotic as war, mm-hmm. um, which is a phenomenon unlike any other in that regard. So I wouldn't make any firm predictions because, you know, who knows? It's, it's impossible to say. All I can really do is look at what the facts show now and what can be empirically ascertained now. And what, can, what the, the facts and empirical data show is a logic of escalation embedded in the policy of the United States and also seemingly of Russia, um, at least of, to some degree, that has led to these mutually irreconcilable warring parties going, uh, drifting further and further away from any sort of mutually agreeable settlement. And China put out what it has called some sort of peace proposal or at least statement of the position on Ukraine. And it's uh, consistent with what China's been advocating this entire time. And this has never even given an airing in at least. US I, I was going to say that uh, I was going to say yeah. that, that China, China's, uh, uh, you know, uh, intervention has kind of been ignored, which is uh, which is uh, uh, which is sad and bizarre, considering um, the role um, China um, can play in ending uh, this, uh, this this conflict. Uh, Michael, um we're we're coming up to to the hour. I just want to thank you for taking time out and coming on to uh, the Drive Time Show on Voice of Islam. I look forward to your tweet about the easiest interview <laughs> you've ever done, <laughs> and, and I wish you a fantastic. Yeah, you, uh... I wish no, you a nice change of pace where I don't feel like I've been bloodied and battered. <laughs> <laughs> I wish you a fantastic weekend ahead. May peace be with you. All right, you too. Thanks. Thank, thank you. you. Zero two zero eight six eight seven seven eight seven eight is the number for you to call if you want to have your say. We have one more guest uh, that we're going to talk to after the news at five. He's the co-founder of Food Not Bombs. Keith McHenry is going to join us after the news. Um, you're listening to the Draft Time Show today with Masaf Reza and Brother Kiyum. We're asking you a question in our opinion poll about today's first topic. Do you think that the Russia-Ukraine war will end peacefully? Yes, soon. Yes, after time. Or a simple no. You can also leave us any comment that you wish on Instagram at Voice of Sam UK. Here is the 5 o'clock news. And then after that, we'll be back right away. Don't go anywhere. Allah, Allah.
You're listening to the Voice of Islam Radio. Broadcasting on DAB and via the internet 24 hours a day. <clears throat> Assalamu alaikum, peace be upon you, and welcome back to the Draft Time Show here on the Voice of Islam today with myself, Raza, and Brother Kiyum. We are talking about the one year anniversary of the Russian Ukraine conflict. And on that, we're asking you a question on our opinion poll on Instagram. So go to our Instagram story at Voice of Islam UK and do leave us a comment and make sure that you um, vote on that question. Um, as I mentioned before the news, we have one more guest on the line for this topic. Keith McHenry, who is the co-founder of Food Not Bombs, is with us on the line. Keith, good afternoon. Peace upon you and welcome to the Draft Time Show. Yeah, thanks for having me on this unfortunate um, anniversary. Indeed. But thank you so much, uh, Keith, once again. As a founding member of the organization Food Not Bombs, what what are your thoughts on the current situation between Russia and Ukraine and how... You know, this has become a quest for who has the most weapon, a quest or um, kind of, uh, you know, for the world to see who's on which side. I think this is definitely the most frightening time, um, you know, in my life. And I, you know, I got under the desks here in the United States during the Cuban Missile Crisis, um, like many other school children did. But this is very frightening. So when I I grew up... um, my grandfather was in the um, OSS, which you know, is the precursor to the CIA, and he uh, did the largest bombing campaign in world history to, um, called, he directed Operation Meeting House. So I grew up listening to him uh, argue with McNamara uh, and, um, and Curtis LeMay, two of his friends, two uh, leading figures in the military in the United States. And he would argue with them about the need to drop the atomic bomb on Hanoi Hmm. to send a message to the communists. So when I started hearing of, you know, reading like uh, uh, Robert Kagan's articles in uh, Foreign Affairs magazine and and uh, following uh, Victoria Newland's career where she was behind the weapon, you know, she supported the idea that there were weapons of mass destruction in Iraq and we see how what a disaster that is. It's the same language, and they're from the same background as my grandfather. Hmm. Um, went to the same schools, Harvard, and all that. So to me, uh, these people are, are, are super dangerous. I don't think people really realize how dangerous this conflict is Be- and because these are, are mad people. These people are, are, are crazy. And I remember, you know, became very interested in Ukraine um, because of our organization, Food Not Bombs, provided meals for 100 days during the Orange Revolution, which uh, we later found out was a State Department um, soft coup, a color revolution. And then um, I was watching a, a video of the Odessa um, Trade Union Hall being burned, and all these uh, people with red and black flags rushing towards the building. And I wrote my friends in Ukraine and said, why are uh, anarchists burning down the trade union hall and they go no these are the same nazis that harass us all the time in our communities and they are not allies of ours they are are are, you know white nationalists Mm -hmm. and 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 i say you know that and i'm not i you know we had white nationalists kill food not bombs activists in uh, four different occasions in russia so i'm not saying that's uh unique to ukraine but um but i am very very frightened uh, the, that 
there could be a mistake and, and you know that would launch a nuclear war and mm. i think if this becomes world war three which it seems like the u.s intelligence is pushing for it, it, well it would be the you know very unlikely that you could have a global war without it going nuclear and I, so i am completely mm. um i think people need to get out on the streets in in the millions and demand a ceasefire right now um, keith I, as much as I agree with with what you're saying, I mean, yes, people need to wake up, but hasn't the governments around the world, especially in the developed world, or should I even say globally, they've left people in such a state that they're, 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 they're more worried about surviving within their own respective countries and their eyes are taken off the ball in respect of what is happening internationally. I mean, we're living in a, in a cost of living crisis, Inflation's uh, rates have, you know, globally, you know, setting new records. Um, the the, I, I, the powers yeah, the think... powers to be, um, are actually getting exactly what they want, isn't it? Oh, oh, absolutely! It's uh, it is astounding that they're like naked in their um, expression of what it is they want to do. Mm. They're not concealing it. It used to be when I was younger, they had to kind of conceal their. Um, their projects and and their their you know their point of view make it you know wrap it more in freedom and democracy than they are now. This is just, but but yeah, I think most Americans um, and I'm sure and I'm sure this is the case in Europe as well are so struggling to survive because of this inflation, which appears to be part of the plan of this war. Hmm. So you know we we recall Victoria Newland in her uh, F the EU tape where she is a. Uh, recorded speaking to um, Ambassador Pratt about who they're going to put into power in in uh, Ukraine and in, in, in uh, 2014 that that was part of the conversation was how can we really put Europe in a, in a grip of uh, economic calamity and that certainly seems to be the case um, and I think things like what's a, what's a, you know the fact that they have the audacity that they would um, it's very likely the United States was involved in the bombing of Nord Stream 1 and 2. That's like economic sabotage of, of, of probably the largest uh, terrorist attack that so far on infrastructure for, you know, affecting millions of Europeans hmm. and uh, helping uh, crash the global economy. So so I do think that people are are just trying to survive. I think you're right. And it's very hard for them to think... Um, you know that there could be a potential nuclear war in in the coming months, and that everything that they're struggling to do to survive will be for naught. You know, it, it, I, I do agree. It's like people are pushed beyond the, the the limit. And here in Santa Cruz, where I live in California, I mean the homeless population is just growing by leaps and bounds. And there's no resources really to help the people living here that live outside in the doorways and in the forests and so on. But we have billions of dollars that we just send to the war in Ukraine at a clip. In fact, there is, I think, a bit of anger in the United States for those who are following that our tax dollars are paying for the pensions and social services of Ukraine while we don't have those things here in the United States ourselves. Um, so finally, Keith, what where, where, where are we going with this? I mean... In, in respect of we we know people are looking to survive um, they're looking at themselves rightfully so i mean that you know they they 
they're more focused on the survival of themselves, their children, their family, their elderly parents, whereas governments within the Western world, I mean, we keep saying global, but within the Western world um, are, are uh, um, you know, um, <clears throat> looking to wage war. Um, is is this kind of a repeat of where we're in, in uh, you know, in Iraq, when, when everybody went and in the first Iraq war, um, you know, Kuwait were... Where, where a deal was made where they were given free oil um, for for uh, for assistance. Um, I hear um, there, there was some news media report saying that the weaponry that uh, the West is giving to Ukraine um, is is might be also uh, without any money. But um, I've never heard of the Western uh, developed world to give anything for free. Do you think there's a there's a deal being made there for grain? For wheat, considering Ukraine is the breadbasket of of Europe, um, well, I get the I get the impression from Zelensky's comments about the reinvestment with BlackRock and Vanguard and these companies like that. That essentially, if um, the West is able to uh, somehow push back Russia or to end up in a stalemate and it remains an independent country, that it'll essentially be um, you know. The, uh, these vultures will basically take it over, and I think, and you know, it's already was. Uh, so, so I don't think that the people will be free in in Ukraine if if there is a so-called victory against Russia, um, because it'll be you know global capital will just you know take it over for all of its minerals, its wheat, and and its uh, human capital, whatever is left after this war, and um, and I do think that the, you know there are some evidence. Uh, that they're kind of trying to make Ukraine the model digital uh, country. Yes. And there's been, they run ads and so on occasionally showing that, you know, that once the war is over in Ukraine, it'll be, everybody will have a digital passport. It'll, you know, everybody will be on record of all their movements and everything. And this will just be a great new um, opening to the bright new future that, uh, you know, that, that, you know, organizations like the, you know, uh, WHO and uh, World Economic Forum and, and Atlantic Council and so on are all pushing this kind of centralized, uh, technocratic um, form of fascism, basically. And that's, I fear, that's the so-called best outcome for Ukraine, and that that is really tragic. And I just hope that, uh, but, you know, you make a point of, I was involved in those huge, giant millions of people out on the streets trying to stop the Iraq war and people in power, including Victoria Nguyen, ignored that global call for peace. Likewise here, likewise here, a million people marched and, uh, and, and yeah. the powers just ignored it. Yep. And we got the same people in, in power now who yeah. ignored us then are very likely to, um, you know, just to discount the concerns of a majority of people on earth who really do not want a world war. I can't imagine anybody really wants that other than these people that are grasping onto some sort of illusion of power. Yeah, so. indeed. Co-founder of Food Not Bombs, Keith McHenry. Keith, thank you very much for, for joining us today. Um, from all of us here, we wish you a great weekend ahead and uh, peace upon you. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. Just to finish off uh, on, the, on this on this particular topic, it's interesting. Everybody talks of weaponry and free weaponry. Mm. Uh, we are in a world recession, yet, yet, 
um, if one was to look at uh, the the shares of Thales from France and Saab from Sweden and Rhein, uh, uh, Rheinmetall from uh, from Germany, BAE Systems in UK, the, uh, all, these are all weapon manufacturers. Their uh, their stocks are setting new records this week. We are in an energy crisis, and the two biggest fuel providers, probably in this country, BP and Shell. Yep, they seem to. They seem to be setting new records. New records in, uh, of their own. Of their own. In his Friday sermon delivered on the 25th of February 2022, His Holiness Hazrat Mirza Masood Ahmed, the current Caliph of the Hamdi Muslim community, urged world leaders to make every effort to de-escalate the situation before it erupts beyond all control. He said, the current world situation has become extremely precarious and there is a real danger the crisis between Russia and Ukraine can escalate and spread, spread much further afield. Certainly, the situation is not just limited to one country, rather many countries will be engulfed in the conflict Continue if the conf- conflict continues to deteriorate. Its impact will be catastrophic and its horrendous consequences will continue to re- reverberate an impact upon generations to come. Thus, I pray that may Allah enable mankind to recognize God Almighty and may they stop toying with the lives of innocent people simply to fulfill their own worldly interests. And I think that last line, toying with the lives of innocent people, that hits a nail on the head. Why all of this is happening. So, yeah, that's all we can do. Hope and pray that this situation does not further de-escalate, that you have some grown-ups that make it to that table where they can um, negotiate some peaceful uh, outcome of this whole situation. With that, we're going to take a very, very teeny tiny break here, and then we'll be back with the second topic for today, and that is about nepotism. You're listening to The Draft Time Show today with myself, Razan Qiyum. Don't go anywhere. You're listening to the Voice of Islam Radio. Broadcasting on DAB and via the internet 24 hours a day. All right, so welcome back bar here on the Draft Time Show with myself, Raza, and Brother Kiyum. Nepotism is family advantage fair. That's the topic that we're going to be talking about in the next half of the program. Now, most of the people, if you think about it, if you were asked about nepotism, you probably would think um, and consider it to be unfair. One of the most basic themes and ethics uh, is fairness, as stated by Aristotle. Equals should be treated equally and unequals unequally. When's When's the first time you heard the word nepotism? Oh, it's been a while. Um, oh, when's the first time you you were told, "Oh, is this nepotism?" And you said, "What? What? What's, what's nepotism?" I think that that would be way back. I think we're, we're looking at maybe high school time, some sometime at that time. It's not a word that gets used. No, it's 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 against one of those isms, isn't it? That yeah, you think, yeah, yeah. Um, that uh, it, it's it's never really discussed uh, until it gets to a point where it starts to affect other people's lives. It it has an effect on society. It has an effect on how um, people run companies, how people run businesses, how power is shared. Um, one of the biggest, um, uh, I suppose, yeah. culprits, if you want to call it, um, within uh, um, Africa or maybe even Asia, uh, political dynasties get yeah. created. 
um, and uh, and people start to feel um, people start to suffer because of nepotism. Yeah. Um, I suppose w- would you say uh, hierarchy within royal family would that be nepotism? I was just thinking about this as well. I don't know. I, I don't know if that would come under nepotism. I, I, that's that's more hereditary, isn't it? It is, but isn't that nepotism that you get it from? I suppose. Well, you know, well, if somebody well, knows the answer to that question, yeah. give us a call. 0208-687-7878. Question from us to you. Now, there you go. Let's let's talk about the origin. This is quite interesting as well. The the origin of that term, this ism, apparently comes from the from a Catholic bishop uh, or Catholic bishops who would bequeath wealth, property, and priesthood to their nephews. Now, the nephews were usually their illegitimate offspring. And it served as a way for the church clergy to both own property and to retain power in their families. But today we use nepotism to refer to the hiring or promotion of a family member, including the in-laws. I love that. <laughs> <laughs> They're probably a little bit further down the, the, the food chain. That's it, including the in-laws. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, yeah, it, it emanates favoritism. So the hiring of relatives in some companies is forbidden by company policy. But as you mentioned, in some parts of the world, we're talking about Asia, I was just watching yeah, political the political dynasties. Yeah, yeah the, you have these big, big, huge corporations, which um, for them it's kind of a given that it is imparted or given to the next generation. So, the big question and the question that we're trying to solve today is if nepotism is a good or a bad thing. Now, favoritism is the broadest of these related terms, and it is just what it sounds like. It's favoring a person, not because he or she is doing the best job, but rather because of some feature membership in a favorite group, personal likes, dislikes, maybe the family name, etc., etc. And it can be demonstrated in hiring and honoring or awarding contracts. A related idea is patronage, given, uh, giving public service jobs to you know those who may have helped elect the person who has the power of appointment. I know some of you are thinking of what happened in the pandemic. I know that is, you know, in your minds. But here with us to talk a little bit more about this is our first guest for today. Professor Tony Greenwald is with us on the line. He's a professor at the University of Washington in Seattle. And as the creator of the Implicit Association Test, which is the international standard for measuring implicit biases. He's going to tell us a bit more about that. Professor Greenwald, good afternoon. Peace upon you and welcome to the Drive Time Show. Thank, thank you and hello. Thank you very much, first of all, for joining us today. Um, we, uh, What I've said so far is that nepotism is a form of favoritism. Now, you have done some research and reviews on favoritism and if it links with 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 discrimination. Can I ask you to please share some of the findings that 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 you um, that that you explored? Well, these are not so much my own findings as findings of others that I covered in a review article published uh, several years ago, and uh, the title of the article was with malice toward none and charity for some. Uh, This is a quote, a revised quote from uh, a speech of Abraham Lincoln's Hmm. in the United States. 
and he was talking about, uh, he actually had said, with malice toward none and charity for all. The question is, do we really give charity to all or only to some? And that's what favoritism is mm. about. Uh, the, <clears throat> the reason for interest in it is that discrimination, which is, excuse me, my, I'm a little stuffy, I'll get over this shortly. <clears throat> discrimination is the main topic that I talk about and study these days, and discrimination is usually studied as something against another person rather than something for another person, hmm. but it can just as well be something for another person. So if in the workplace you are attached to some people more than others, uh, you may, and you you are supervising these people, you may do nicer things for the people that you like more than those you dislike. That would be favoritism, and you would be giving them benefits. If you give them benefits collectively, don't give the benefits equally to all who may deserve it, uh, you're actually discriminating. And that's something, <clears throat> excuse me again, that's something that uh, would be against the law in the United States. Um, Professor, would you agree with the statement that in the public sphere, favoritism or nepotism undermines the common good? Um, would would uh, would nepotism be treated differently, be it in the private sector f compared to the public sector? Uh, I, <clears throat> it, it, if we're talking about employment, which is what the U.S. laws are about. Uh, it can be private or public sector employment. Uh, but it could be in the public sector, it could be in politics, so it could be in uh, a legislative body or parliament. Uh, that may not be covered by law. So in that sense, the public sector might be different um, to some extent <clears throat> from the private, but uh, favoritism, I, I mean, I, I would include nepotism as just one of the uh, clearest examples of favoritism. Uh, you know, if you, if, you are, if you're a son or brother or sister or husband or father is working and you are supervising them, uh, yes, that that would be nepotism, or if you give them a job in preference to someone else. Uh, and you ask, does it undermine the common good? And I would say yes, uh, but there, where the where we would almost always make some exception, uh, excuse me, exceptions are. Uh, you know, you don't cook meals for everyone. You cook it for your people in your family. Mm. Uh, that's no one would have a problem with your doing things like that uh, for to take care of members of your family. That's considered part of your 
responsibility as a parent or a child or a sibling. Uh, so, yeah, there is a somewhat of, there are some ex- exceptions to the uh, idea that nepotism uh, is generally bad, although we don't use the word nepotism when we're talking about parents doing mm-hmm. things for their children, uh, such as feeding them and clothing them uh, and housing them. Professor Greenwell, thank you very much for joining us today. Um, Professor at the University of Washington in Seattle, Professor Tony Greenwald with us on the line. Thank you very much for your time, sir. Great to talk to you. And from all of us here, we wish you a great uh, weekend and a wonderful evening ahead. Thank you so much. Peace be on you. Thank you very much. 0208687787. 0208687787. Tony Robbins, a life and business strategist and a best-selling author, has written um, on uh, nepotism in the workplace. And he says that nepotism in the workplace has always been a hot topic, especially in politics and business. Some examples are Donald Trump putting his daughter and son-in-law into advisory roles during his presidency and John F. Kennedy nominating his brother as attorney general. In the business world, Rupert Murdoch's son, James, has attained a powerful role thanks in part to his father, while much of the Walton family has been involved in the running of Walmart. So in the news, or nepotism in the news, brings up important questions. For example, is hiring family members always wrong? Wrong. According to Robbins, despite the negative connotation, nepotism in the workplace is a common practice in the business world. It occurs frequently in politics, large corporations, nonprofit organizations, and small businesses. For example, you have reciprocal, you have entitlement, you have cronyism, you have other forms as well, where you have family members accepting a position because they feel entitled to it, you have family members accepting a position because they are financially dependent on the employer, um, or because they're finan- or or simply because um, there is a difference between. Um, or, or they're they're confused. Is is it similar? But is it when you hire friends or give promotions to close colleagues rather than family, uh, along these lines? So here with us to talk a little bit more about this topic is our next guest. Next guest for today, Professor Joan Lee, L. Joan Pierce, who is a distinguished professor emerita of the organization and management, University of California. Um, her research is on how workplace interpersonal. Uh, processes may be affected by political structures and organizational and practices. And she has written over 100 scholarly articles and several books, um, probably not just on this topic, but I'm sure there's something um, that we can ask her on this. Professor Joan Pierce, good afternoon. Peace be upon you and welcome to the Draft Time Show. Good afternoon. Now, you have written an article, Cronyism and Nepotism are Bad for Everyone, the Research Evidence. Tell us more about that. Well, that essay was in response to another article that was arguing that um, cronyism and nepotism were good things. And so all I do in that brief essay is talk about what the research evidence shows. And the research evidence shows that if you're concerned with organizational performance and for the fellow employees, it's not good for them. Again, my focus was not on family firms where it's the personal property of the founder or the owner of the Mm. firm. Of course, money is not the only thing we all care about, and they want to build a personal legacy. That's one thing. But my focus has been on government, nonprofit, and business organizations that where the decision maker is not the person who owns the organization. Mm. 
So that's what it's about. And the research evidence shows that it's it's quite uh, certainly bad for the organization's performance. And it's lots of negative effects on the other employees and the managers themselves. Professor, do you consider uh, or would you would you, do you not agree that hiring relatives is easy and can lead to greater trust if the relations get along and share a common purpose? Yes, uh, it certainly is easy because <laughs> um, you don't have to advertise and interview people. Um, but it, is it uh, lead to trust? The real question is it can lead to trust, of course, um, but it also doesn't mean it's the only way to gain trust in an organization. There's lots of us work in organizations without family members and build trusting relationships quite easily. And of course, many uh, you know family firms have lots of negative dynamics just because you're blood related to somebody doesn't mean you always get along or have the same ideas about what the organization should do. There's actually a whole, a whole field of professionals who combine clinical psychology with organizations, my field, who counsel people in family firms where the, the child that's being brought in um, and then the founder have all kinds of disputes and emotional distress. It's a whole area of consulting. So it just means it's not always going to be easy just because somebody is a family member. So it's not just a family member, is it? I mean, I, I would have, again, just thinking out loud here, would it, would the merit of the individual, be it the son, the daughter, or the nephew, or whatever it may be, would that not, or should that not be the, the main contributor to a decision? In most organizations, again, not looking at family firms where people have a, an emotional reason for what they do, and it's their company. Um, but, yeah, the person could be the best person for the job, of course. Um, the difficulty is that for the person who's brought in, let's say that the nephew is brought in or the friend is brought in, um, it's the coworkers who say, well, and, and the, the coworkers who say, well, is this person really, is this fair? Is this an fair organization? Are they going to judge me on my performance, or is it all about connections and who you know? Some of my research of, on organizations where it was who you know, it's a personal relationships, not family, uh, find that what happens if people think that the way to get ahead is to be the friend of a decision maker, there's lots of kissing up, and that's the way people focus their attention, not on doing the best job. So that create and, and I want to say it creates a potential problem for the the friend or child brought in because they come in without legitimacy, um, in a lot of organizations. And so even if they are quite good and competent, they have to work a little harder to build legitimacy with their peers. Now, Professor, I know you mentioned that you're not specifically talking about private businesses, but if I may, let's let's if mm-hmm. if I may just use the private example company as an example. A private company who uh, employs thousands of people and the owner of the company decides to choose, say, his son or daughter to take over, are the the welfare of those thousand employees not uh, put into jeopardy if the son and daughter are not qualified um, to do that job but are getting the job (laughs) because they are the son and daughter and they have an emotional tie? Yeah, if they're not qualified, that's true. I mean, there is research that shows that and there are a lot of large family firms. Um, and when family firms hire an independent management to run the company, they're more profitable than ones 
especially if it's the oldest son. <laughs> so mm-hmm. primogenitor, which is big in Britain, um, is actually, those are the least functional uh, family firms when just the oldest son automatically gets it. Um, so, so it's going to hurt the company. I'll give you an example of how that works. <clears throat> I, I would teach executive MBA students, so they're older, they're in their 40s, and a lot of people come because they work in a family firm and they feel like they just don't have any upward mobility, any chance to be judged uh, other than, you know, on their merit. So they actually go and get an executive MBA because they're looking to change industries or move to a different company. And a lot of people get MBAs because they want to do that. So I've had lots of conversations with people who just feel that they just can't get ahead. And so that means that the company is potentially losing good people because they don't see a chance to get ahead in an organization that favors family over performance. So based on that argument, would you say nepotism is unethical? Would you consider it unethical? Unethical is strong. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, 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 unethical, um, again, again, if it's, I, I don't think that money is the be-all and end-all, and organizations can maximize all kinds of things. Leaving a legacy for your family is a very legitimate and appropriate thing. In that case, I don't think it's unethical. It's just a matter of, again, my focus is on the organization's performance. I do think that people who abuse their positions when they're a hiring manager, when they are hire their job is to hire the best performing person and they hire a friend or a relative that's probably unethical because they're basically lying to their employer um, so that in that case it is unethical but I, I think there are other circumstances where it really wouldn't be so nepotism I mean would you agree if I say that nepotism when one looks at the definition of it on paper theoretically, it would come across as unethical, yet when put into practice, depending upon the, the uh, an organizational structure and merit, it could work. It, it could work. <laughs> it's just a little more difficult for everybody. Yes. Um, and that doesn't mean it can't work. It, um, it just means everybody has to work a little harder, including that nepotism comes from nephew, including that nephew who was hired in, who has to work to prove themselves and manage their relationship. Family is family. And managing, uh, if you have a difference of opinion or the founder is unhappy with what the family member or friend is doing, it creates all kinds of very strong emotional difficulties for people. And that can interfere with the organization. The reason I mention, and and I say that, is because earlier you were talking about, um, you know, it's about who you know. But isn't in the corporate industry or across the world, uh, irrespective of which side, which continent you're coming from, who you know does matter? Yes, it does. <laughs> um, <laughs> yes, it does. So, but, but the real issue then is, is how that relationship is managed in the sense of just automatically hiring somebody that you know. Sometimes a manager, let's say they have, a, they have to decide which subordinate gets a promotion, and they are more friendly with one. Well, they might be more friendly because that person's a better performer. Hmm. And so that helps the supervisor. Um, and so they become more friendly with that person than they do with the poor performer. So for the poor for performer, it looks like, oh, that's just favoritism. That's just somebody hmm. who is the favorite of the boss. But the boss, you know, could the reason they're a favorite is that they're a good performer. So it gets, I just, we have a new article that we just published with a student. And this is for a U.S. government um, uh, organization and one of the major agencies in the U.S. government. 
And that's where they have a lot of very strict rules about no nepotism, no cronyism and favoritism. And yet we still find large percentages of people saying they call it the buddy system. They said the buddy system is the way you get ahead. The buddy system means who gets preferred. And that's in an organization with a lot of rules to try to prevent that. So it's obviously everywhere. (laughs) Um, Even when they try to get rid of it, it's hard. Professor, please forgive me. It's an unfair question. It's something me and 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 my my, my friend here, brother Raza, just just it just a question popped up. Would a, a, a <laughs> monarchy be deemed as nepotism, uh-huh. or would that be outside well, of that frame? <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. Well, it's what the oldest son, or I guess now it can be oldest daughter too in Britain. Um, uh, rather than, yeah, the word comes from nephew, and it has, you're right, the negative connotation because it implies you're bringing in family when you shouldn't. Yes. Um, but sure, of course, <laughs> by definition, right? Yep. It's, it's a hereditary monarchy. But there are other, historically, things where, you know, the oldest son didn't automatically become the next chief or king. It became among a set of people, and there was a kind of vote. In the ancient days of Britain, the kings were not from hmm. the oldest son. It was from the, the people in the group deciding who was the best person. Wonderful. Now, Professor Pierce, uh, one last question. You spoke about performers. We, I want to ask you about the entertainment industry because not just in Hollywood, but also in different other, specifically when you look towards Asia, there was a huge controversy and discussion about this um, that is, is quite rampant. It's quite normal. It's completely normal, actually for people to be in the family business. Um, is, is there any difference um, in, 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 in the entertainment industry? What makes nepotism well, well, one, different? One feature, um, yeah, because I'm an organization's person. So one feature of the entertainment industry, let's say you want to become an actor, it's a very, very competitive industry. It's, everybody knows there hmm. are millions of movies about this. It's very hard to break in. So there are many, many very high-quality people Um, who want to get ahead. So if you have a situation in which there are many, many high-quality people who want a job, it's if you pick somebody at random, if a chimp threw a dart at a dartboard, you would still get a good person, right? So in, in highly competitive industries where people are very, there are many very, very good people, you certainly can have a perfectly good person who is selected based on family connections mm. because it is so competitive that person might come to the top of people's attention because they're the daughter or son of their boss, the person's boss, so um, or somebody they want to cultivate favor with. So, so the entertainment industry, yes, there are some very good people who are the children of um, important, powerful people in the industry, but that's also because it's it, they're, they're good because there were lots of people to select from that are very, very good, and many just never get a chance who are just as good. Wonderful. Professor Pierce, thank you very much for joining us today. Very, very interesting to talk to you and uh, to you as well. We wish you a great evening and a great weekend ahead from all of us here at the Draft Time Show. Thank you so much once again. Peace be with you. Thank you. Bye-bye. 0208687 is the number for you to call. Don't forget, we're still asking you that question about the first topic. Do you think that a peaceful solution or a peaceful end to the Russian-Ukraine conflict is possible um, yes, soon, a yes after time, or a simple no at Voice of Some UK. You were talking about uh, Zoe Kravitz. Mm. Uh, and, uh, you know, the, the 
when she said in an interview that it's completely normal for people to be in the family business. Hmm. She is an entertainer. She's in the entertainment industry. Yeah. Her mother is a very famous actress, or yeah. Lisa Bonet, and Lenny Kravitz is a very famous singer. Yes. So if they, who are both from the industry, want to launch their daughter, what's... What's wrong with that? Cause, cause, <laughs> because if you think about it, because I know you were referring no. to the Bollywood industry. <laughs> you were referring to the Bollywood industry. And, and if somebody wants to become an actor, they need to have experience. Yeah. Now, if my dad owns the <laughs> definition experience, <laughs> why why shouldn't he give me experience or, or tell me, well, no, no, I want you to go out and, and, and get rejections from Tom, Dick and Harry and, yeah. and, and never Shafkat, make it. And Shafkat Ali and Uncle. Never and make it. Exactly. Yeah. So I think it depends on the industry. Yeah. I think it, I think the, that's what that's what like, Professor like Tony Pierce Robbins, was saying. And like Tony Robbins say, it's yeah. it is something that uh, uh it's subject to. Yeah. So when you talk about government jobs, of course it's a big no no. Yep. That's uh, that, depending on the sector. I think industry, the entertainment industry, is probably not one of those where it would make a huge difference, and you would have like big laws in place to make sure that Zoe Kravitz never made it. Anyways, moving on, and I think there's one, one, one more guest that we have, but I think we'll we'll shortly come to uh, Professor Paget. But before that. Look, speaking about this in general, again, when we talk about nepotism, when we talk about favoring people just because you have a relationship with them, just because you are related to them or they're acquainted to you. In the Holy Quran, in chapter 4, verse 59, God Almighty states that verily Allah commands you to make over the trusts to those entitled to them, and that when you judge between men, you judge with justice, and surely excellent is that with which Allah admonishes you. Allah is all hearing, all seeing. Now, referring to this verse, the current head of the Hamdi Muslim community, His Holiness, has a Mizam Masood Ahmed Mella strength in his hand. He said that if nepotism and favoritism is practiced, justice is not done and matters lose blessings. Just and fair decisions should be made by office holders of the community as regards every member of the community. It should not be that if someone is a friend of such and such or is from such and such family, different treatment is extended to him while contra- contradictory decisions are made for others. Such matters create anxiety in the community. And that's absolutely right. And it's, there's, there's, you know, culture plays a lot of part in this. Yes. You know, you walk into a room and instead of saying, what's your name? Or you hello, know, my name is, you know what they'll say? Who's your father? Yeah, who's your father? <laughs> Whose child are you? It is, and, it is. And, and, you know, I can understand why they're asking because they're trying to relate. Yeah. But somewhere down the line, there's this gray area that develops. Yeah. And decisions get made not based on you as an individual, but where you come from. And your name. Or whose yes. son you are yeah. or blah, 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 blah. Yeah. And that's what His Holiness was talking about, that there needs to be uh, there needs to be merit. There needs to, Everyone needs to be uh, assessed. I'm not going to use mm. the word judge because mm. mm. that's wrong. It's... If, if, you know, you need to assess a person's character uh, uh, and instead of looking at, well, who's their father or grandfather. Yeah. Um, that And, and you know, because if you do that, there is, you, you're actually committing injustice. That, that's what, what it ultimately leads to, I think. Look, when 
I'm thinking about when we spoke about this in like the the golden age or the golden era of Islam when when the Muslims made it all the way to Spain and even before that. Now, if if that principle was adhered to, you would only find Muslim statesmen. Mm. You would find only Muslims in government who would hold the most important positions, the key positions. That was not the case. Not just in Spain, but even before that, when you look at the, the, the different parts. You remind me of a time, I think, you, I'm sure you will correct me, it was under Caliph Omar. Hmm. He appointed a non-Muslim, yes. or he was already yes. a ruler of a, of a, of a, of a city so, that was conquered, and yes. he said, well, no, leave him be. That's what, that's, that's what the Caliph Omar and, and I think the Muslims at that time, what, what they did was to leave them in charge why do you why reinvent the wheel that's right if things were working if things were, were if they're were, just if they're just and, they're and things and, yeah. were working already and everything was in place there was no need for them to replace that person just because he was not a muslim that's right just because he was not from a certain family or whatnot and it worked perfect example setting yeah yeah that's what it was now um moving on in the caliphate of Islam as well as and I think this is one of the questions that we wanted to maybe address in, in a little bit um, not, not into too much detail but just you know touch upon that because that's something which is closely associated to the to, to the institution of caliphate in the Amdi Muslim community as well but we'll do that after we've spoken to our next guest for today, who's an associate professor of management in the Lacey School of Business at Butler University in Indianapolis. And uh, we're going to talk to Professor Margaret Paget. She teaches courses in organizational behavior, leadership, and talent management. Good afternoon, peace be upon you, and welcome to the Draft Time Show, Professor Paget. Thank you very much. I'm happy to be here. Thank you very much for joining us today. Um, s- straightforward question. Do you think or do you consider nepotism to be unfair? Well, that, that's a good question, <laughs> but it's unfortunately not one that necessarily has a straightforward answer. Sure. Because what is considered um, fair is really a value judgment, and our values are influenced by our culture and the country we're from. And so that means that people can legitimately have different views about whether or not nepotism is fair. Um, If we look at the United States as an example, um, the United States is what we would call an individualistic culture where we place a lot of value on um, independence and self-reliance. We also place a lot of value on equality. And so when you look at nepotism from that cultural perspective, um, I think it wouldn't be surprising that people would say, well, that's not really fair because it violates those values. On the other hand, in collectivist countries where people identify a lot more strongly with the group that they're a part of and they want to uh, protect the interests of the people within that group. Nepotism is probably not going to be viewed um, as unfair because you're simply helping out a family member, which is mm. considered to be a good thing to do. Um, so I think one factor that determines whether it's fair or not is sort of the cultural values of the, the person who's looking at it. Um, one of the other things that I think is important here is sort of how nepotism is practiced. Um, and in particular, what I'm thinking about is sort of the relative role that the person's qualifications versus their um, family connection had in the hiring process. Because that's one of the concerns that people often have about nepotism is that it results in hiring people that are not qualified. 
Uh, but there's no reason that that has to be the case. Nepotism doesn't require that you hire someone not qualified. Um, and in fact, Adam Bellow, who wrote the book in praise of nepotism, said that people are not going to think nepotism is, is bad or unfair if you're hiring a family member who is qualified. Hmm. Now, you conducted a study on the topic, or does nepotism in the hiring process really benefit the beneficiary? Tell us more about that. Yeah, well, um, what we learned in that study is that um, you know, there are some sort of hidden or subtle negative consequences from practicing nepotism, both for the organization and for the family member who is hired, which means it's kind of a double-edged sword. Um, you know, on the positive side, you know, I think organizations have a reason, a good reason for potentially practicing nepotism because they think um, they can make a better hiring decision. Um, if you've got an employee who's a good employee, um, you're likely to assume that a relative of that person is going to be a good employee, too. So hiring a family member seems like a simpler way to get good employees than hiring somebody who is, you know, coming to the company completely unknown, uh, which, by the way, is why some companies use employee referrals, sort of the same kind of logic. Um, and for the family member, it's obvious what the, the benefit is, but here's where that, that double-edged sword comes into play, um, because there can be an, a hidden price for using that family connection. Um, in several of the studies that we conducted, as well as some research by other people, um, we found that employees who observe the occurrence of nepotism but don't benefit from it um, have more negative responses to the organization. Oops. And it, with respect to the organization side, uh, we found that they were satisfied with their job and less motivation to work hard. Um, they also report having less commitment to the organization. Hmm. Um, and then finally, we found that they perceive the hiring process less fair, um, which is sort of that driving, the factor that drives the um, lower motivation and satisfaction and that kind of thing. And obviously, those negative attitudes can be costly for organizations because they can result in absenteeism or other undesired behaviors or result in the employee leaving the, the company. Um, from the perspective of the person who, the family member who benefited from the nepotism, there's also some negative consequences for them, uh, unfortunately. Um, what we have found is that um, the family member who is hired is viewed as less competent. They're also viewed as having less management potential than a non-family member who has equal qualifications. Mm. Um, interestingly, they're also found as less likable, uh, which <laughs> may be part of why others report less willingness to provide support and assistance to the individual when they're a family member than when they're not. Wonderful. Um, and then perhaps the most subtle negative consequence for the beneficiary relates to how people interpret their successful performance, assuming that they end up being successful on the job. Uh, and what we found is that when a person is hired with nepotism, their success is less likely to be attributed to their ability and their skills, which are the kinds of explanations for success that lead others to say, hey, you know, this person should be promoted or get a raise or something like Instead, what we found is that they tend to discount their, their good performance or their success and say, um, well, the reason they were successful is because they have good relationships with people higher up in the organization or they have um, good political skills. Um, and those explanations for success are less likely to lead to positive outcomes. Wonderful. So, as you can see, there's sort of a, a negative stigma associated with having been hired because of a, of a of a family connection that you might have. 
Professor Paget, very interesting to talk to you. Thank you very much for joining us today. Unfortunately, that's all we have time for. The show is coming to an end, but very, very interesting, as I said. And thank you very much for your time. Um, for My pleasure to be here. Thank, thank you. you. Fantastic weekend. Peace be with you. Have a great weekend and peace be with you, Professor Paget, who is an associate professor of management in the Lacey School of Business at Butler University in Indianapolis. Maybe that's the first time we went to Indianapolis. Um, Now, coming to the end of today's program, we were going to talk about one more uh, issue, wasn't it? Well, we're going to touch on it. Touch on it. It's 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 an allegation, touch and go. which is which is kind of hurled at the, the Avenue Muslim community by other um, sects within the Muslim world, um, because when they don't have an argument, to, <laughs> when, when when they don't have on the board. when they run out of arguments, uh, uh, mm, they, let's talk about they, that. they get personal and and you know they, they kind of uh, start putting allegations across. But before you get into that. Uh, you know, I wasn't going to get into that. I was going to ask you. No, well, I was going to ask you. <laughs> there we go. Call dibs on that, that one. There, there we go. Uh, that problem's old. <laughs> <laughs> Moving on. <laughs> well, the Holy Prophet, may peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, was the Prophet of God. After him, Caliphate was uh, mm. uh, was established. His uh, the first Caliph, uh, Hazrat Abu Bakr, mm. um, uh, may Allah be pleased with him. He was uh, the father-in-law. Of the Holy Prophet, uh, I don't know if uh, Caliph Omar hmm. was related in any way. He was. How? Um, I think he was a first cousin. Okay. And also, he was the father-in-law of the Holy Prophet. Oh, Peace be Yes, he was. Of course. The third no, Caliph. No, for, yeah, the third Caliph. Father-in-law, I know for sure. Yeah, the on, third Caliph of uh, of the Holy Prophet. Uh, uh, yeah, the third Caliph of the Holy Prophet. May peace be with Allah be upon him. Uh, Caliph uh, Osman. Or Caliph Osman. Osman. Well, where'd you come up with that Osman? Osman, what, man. That? Osman, Caliph. Well, you know, it's Osman. like Osman. He was son-in-law of the Holy Prophet. Yes. Twice over. The fourth Caliph of the Holy Prophet, with peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, was the cousin yes. of the Holy Prophet, Hazrat Ali. Hmm. May Allah be pleased with him. So when people know that somewhere down the line, they're just... It's coincidentally that uh, there was relations that were created mm. to hurl the similar kind of accusation at the Amdi Muslim community. It's a bit bizarre. <laughs> it's like you're arguing against yourself. Yeah, it is. A, yes, it is. A, you know, oh, there's nepotism and and uh, uh, you know, oh, the son was chosen as a caliph mm-hmm. or the nephew was chosen. As, well, the first caliph actually wasn't related to. Well, actually. He wasn't. He, he wasn't related no. to the, the the promised Messiah on whom be peace, Hazrat Hakim Nuruddin. Um, may, Allah, uh, may Allah have mercy on his soul. He wasn't pleased. Uh, he wasn't related to the promised Messiah yeah. at all. Um, the the position the uh, of of a caliph is not chosen by people. It is a divine uh, um, um, uh, position where people pray. And a caliph is chosen by God Almighty. Yeah. Uh, that is something Muslims who hurl accusations at us should understand. If there was a non-Muslim who was saying that, I would say, okay, it's something I would discuss with you and I can say, look, I can show you. Mm. But when a Muslim hurls these accusations at the community, they're again, as I said before, they're arguing against themselves because 
in the earliest in in the in the righteous uh, caliphate we've just gone through all of them yeah and yeah. it's not like that the the caliph who's right now he's going to appoint the next one exactly I mean, he doesn't you do go. that himself the word key key word is appoint yeah. there is no appointments mm. and you know the beauty i i've i'm old enough to experience third caliphate fourth caliphate mm. and current caliphate when these when these gentlemen uh, these these people were appointed as caliphs you know what they want what they said mm. they don't want it they were of course because they <laughs> What's said that? it's it's, it's uh, i remember the fourth caliph said it's 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 the most loneliest place in the world yeah, yeah. it's 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 more of a it feels like a punishment yeah. more than anything else so these are not offices that these these the um, with the current caliph uh, his holiness hazrat mirza masrur ahmed may allah strengthen his hand when he uh, was uh, uh, chosen as the caliph i i was there hmm. yeah what did he say pray 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 he i remember the first prayer he led and in surah fatiha the first chapter hmm. when he led the prayer he recited the same verse again and again and again hmm. he, re- he because it was all about prayer these people do not choose this position yeah they are chosen by god almighty and with that we are coming to the end of today's program uh, thank you very much uh, to all of our listeners for staying with us today's uh, program has been researched and produced by Nabahat Nayira Faiza Mirza and Khansa Razak thank you so much to them and thank you to our brother in tech Akib as well thank you to um to you again for listening in Make sure that you tune in tomorrow to SML at 10 a.m. and Weekend World at 10 a.m. on Sunday. The Draft Time Show is going to be back with you on Monday, inshallah. And don't forget, 7 a.m. on Monday, The Breakfast Show. From all of us here, thank you so much. Assalamu alaikum.